Um, right, well, I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this time together tonight. Um, I talked to a couple of people on the way in who were all like, oh, I'm tired. So we pray, wake us up, engage us, give us energy, because we want to take this stuff in. And we're opening your word. We're gathering around a word. And, man, we expect to walk away different, that you would show us things uh, and confirm things to us and say, yeah, like, step into that, be mobilized in that area. Um, you might have, like, challenges, questions, things you want to provoke us to think about, to be transformed by, to, to wrestle with. Uh, and we want to be attentive to what your spirit has to say tonight. And so guide the whole conversation, Jesus. Uh, guide the questions that come up, the comments, the, uh, where we spend our time. Um, and this is, this is all about us, Jesus, wanting to fall more in line with the way of Jesus. So we just lay that out. You know, we acknowledge sometimes we're really entrenched in things and it's hard for you to move us. So we just ask for your grace to help us, to transform us into your image, to be more a people that represent you. Amen. Okay. So like we did with the Old Testament, we did like a quick recap. What was life like in the ancient Near East? So we're going to scroll forward a lot of centuries to the first century. And I'm going to start us off with a few what was life like, what was kind of going on in the first century. So there is a strong patriarchal vibe going on in the sort of Greco-Roman culture and the Jewish culture in the first century. Um, there's a sort of dominance uh, of men in society playing this role not just as like the people who tend to own more property, run more businesses, have political power, things like that. But wherever the women are, there's always this kind of connection. Uh, like wherever there's a woman, there's a male guardian. And so there's this definite sort of ordering in society um, of this sort of uh, male guardianship. And so when a woman was born, then her father was that person who, especially as a child, kind of ruled her. That in the ancient way of thinking, children kind of bore uh, an irredeemable debt to their parents who had given them life. So the power a parent had over a child was absolute. Um, and that wasn't male and female. I, I'm sorry, it wasn't. That wasn't just female children. That was just children in general. Um, but, you know, as they grew up, became adults, um, they got married a little later because they would get married a little bit earlier than we're used to. Um, but then that would transfer from the father to the husband. And other people could sort of fill in that role. Um, so, you know, it could be like an uncle or a brother, like, but there was always a male figure who was the kind of one who had this... Um, a, a little bit of, like, duty of care over the woman, being seen as, like, a, a weaker... Um, not having the kind of intellectual prowess, the education, the um, just wherewithal, the kind of street smarts, like knowing the way the world works, understanding the public sphere, understanding the, the marketplace, like things like that. Um, like a, a woman was not fitted for those things. And that not being fitted was partly a fact of, yeah, most women didn't get opportunity to figure that stuff out. And, but partly it was part of their sort of metaphysics. Uh, there was a, a long-standing tradition, although it was beginning to change a bit. Uh, the, if you go in the few centuries before Christ, it was this was stronger. But that women were kind of malformed males. So, um, you know, if there was a sort of third century BC classroom, you know, the biology classroom, the teacher would pull down the, the chalkboard and there'd be a diagram of a man and a woman. And they would point the man and be like look at all these perfections and then all the differences for the woman be like ah oh, look she's imperfectly formed in this way this way this way this way so it was just like ah oh, you're not you're not really all there which is a phrase makes sense to us but that's that's kind of how they thought about women just metaphysically not all there and so these things drove this idea of male guardianship um but uh there, there were exceptions. 
So there were wealthy, independent women. They tended to be widows who had a lot of money either because they'd uh, kept their husband's estate if there was no male heir for it to go to, or quite often they were wealthy women who um, then could use their dowry when they became a widow. Um, but they were the exception, like a tiny, tiny, tiny minority. Um, since I mentioned divorce, um, so this isn't sort of interesting shift in culture. In the ancient world, women were nearly always treated as property, and not just treated, but thought of as. It wasn't just a habit that looks a bit like treating them like property, but actually, no, you're kind of like, you belong to me. Um, but by the time we get to the first century, um, there's been some little changes. Like Women are often treated in ways that have the heritage of being property, and, and often look a lot like us, like they are still being treated like property. And especially if you were, the, the lower down the social strata you are, the more likely this was. Um, but uh, women could do things like own businesses, own property. They could initiate divorces, which is like in the kind of world of the ancient Near East, even within Judaism, kind of unheard of for a female to be able to initiate divorce. But, um, and actually, within Judaism, it was still relatively rare. But in the Roman and Greek cultures, actually, it, it was legally okay for women to initiate divorce. So, yeah, we're, we're seeing, like, women start to have a little bit more of a voice, some different rights. Some, uh, so things have changed. Things are a little bit different. But there's, um, yeah, there's the, the echoes of the sort of ancient patriarchy are still, like, looming pretty hard in the foreground um, so this, this male guardianship um, it, the father, the head of the household he had, it's called paterfamilias, so it was uh, kind of like father over the entire household and this meant he had to rule and manage the household, so he's like CEO uh, chief of operations, everything okay, he like the buck stops with him with every responsibility. Um, and as, especially over children and slaves, his authority and rule was absolute. You did not want to be a slave in the ancient world. You especially did not want to be a female slave. Um, like things get horrific. You know, the, the, any idea of rights dwindles to a vanishing point, it just disappears. Um, so he has this absolute rule, but he also has a sense of responsibility. So it's easy for us to picture in our head, like, oh, every guy was a totalitarian, you know, pain in the butt to his family. And, yeah, some of them could be like that, and there wasn't really much their family could do. But within the culture, the expectation was that also this uh, being the paterfamilias meant you had a duty of care to your family you were responsible for the welfare of everyone in your house. And so responsibility was part of it as well. And you were also, like, the front man of your family. You represented your family in the public sphere. And that's interesting because male and female, you know, you, within your household, you could have, like, a weird uncle, male children, female children, nephew. You could have all sorts of people. And you are the representative in the public sphere. So it's not just that women always need a man to represent them, like they can't do anything on their own. Uh, actually, the idea of being the, the head of the household was you represent all the men and women in your home. Um, but, again, the twist on it, the women, yeah, but they couldn't do it on their own. You know, That weird uncle might get married, move out, make his own household, and then he'll be able to represent himself. But a woman, no, that's something she's never going to do. Um, the, uh, the, the state of marriage had also it changed over the centuries uh, a few centuries before Jesus it was really common when a woman entered into a marriage that all of her stuff other than her dowry then became her husband's um, uh, but 
things had uh, things had changed by the first century. Again, a little bit of a twist of like Judaism had not changed as much as the Greco-Roman world. But in the Greco-Roman world, a woman entered into marriage, her property was still hers. The twist, though, was the proceeds from her property went to her husband. But it meant that if she was ever divorced or widowed or anything like that, she had her dowry and the property she entered the marriage with. And so, you know, we're, we're definitely looking at, like, middle class and up. <laughs> you know, you were in the 50% of the Roman Empire that was living at a subsistence level or below and owning property you could get proceeds from was nothing <laughs> for you. Um, but just interesting to note some of these like little differences. The world was changing a little bit. Um, so what was an ideal female like? You know, what was the sort of image they had in this sort of first century world um, of an ideal woman? So first thing, she would be submitted to the head of the household. She's go- she is going to act in a way that makes the ruler of the household's job easier. That, like, let him call the shots, let him do things his way, let him make the plan. Like, you're, you're in a full submission role. Um, I'm going to sort of point out some twists along the way. But, and there's lots of sort of counterexamples, um, it was possible for women to wield huge influence through their husbands. So although it was the ideal for a woman to be submitted, like a, a great example is Caesar Augustus's wife. She was known as like the second most powerful person in Rome. But she had no public voice. She didn't spend a load of money. She didn't like... It was the influence she had over her husband that was publicly known and recognised. So although the ideal was sort of picture perfect, like what are we going to have on the postcard is submission... In reality, women could act in some different ways. And there's a phrase I liked, uh, which is uh, this sort of female submission of these ideals. They were a rule that could bend, but not break. And so these exceptions, they show us like little pockets of social change, of like different ideas, but the norm is still like people are pointing towards this ideal. So submission... Um, and another thing was to be a sort of domestic goddess, to love the private sphere of the household, to not want to sort of, you know, uh, well, they wouldn't do this because they had no, I was going to say not want to become an Olympic athlete because we've got the Olympics around the corner, but the Olympics were just for men. Um, but, yeah, didn't, didn't want to do really, didn't desire to be outside of the household, didn't want to... Uh, you know, en- enter into any sort of vocation that took you out of the realm of the domestic duties, which would be like caring for the family, feeding them, weaving cloth, you know, all sorts of things like that. Um, you would be silent in public spaces um, because if you were going to have influence, it would be through the voice of your husband because he is the representative of your, fa- of your family. If people want to know what your family's got to say, they're, they're going to look to him. Like he's the duly appointed spokesperson. Um, and modesty and chastity. Uh, and that's one where you see a real difference. Guys sleeping around, sleeping with slaves, you know, all sorts of debauchery, do what you like, no problem at all. You know, as, as long as you're not having adultery with like a more upper class married woman and bringing shame on another family, it really doesn't matter what you do. If you're a woman, like any sign of immodesty and you've brought shame on the whole family so, so there's some really stark differences in that area um, and then in the home that sort of submission it kind of filters through to like family life so example would be uh, the women would serve the men and they would eat last or if they were going on a journey and this is like a different one for us um, it, but it would be the man would ride and the woman would walk behind. So all of those nativity plays where Mary's on the donkey and Joseph's... I mean, maybe Joseph was a stand-up guy and really nice, but actually, culturally, it's probably the other way around. Probably Joseph was on the donkey and Mary's, you know, preggers walking behind mile after mile. So that, that was just a norm for them. That just felt a normal thing to do. Education. 
access to education was severely limited. Now, women still were taught a lot, but they were taught how to become the ideal wife. So they were taught how to help run a household, how to feed people, how to manage slaves uh, around their domestic duties, like all those sorts of things. Um, but there are exceptions. Wealthy women who had means and had time sometimes did press into education. There were women writers, poets, uh, people who wrote uh, history, tragedy, you know, uh, all, all sorts of things, philosophy, things like that. But again, they're the rare exceptions. And they're always the elite. And there's a big, like, uh, a sort of, you know, paint a portrait of a first century woman. It's like, well, from which part of society? Really, really different picture, um, depending on which part of society you're from. Um, Held the mic in one position, now I've got pins and needles in this hand. Uh, okay. I'm now looking at my notes and thinking I should have followed these. I think I've said all of that page mostly. Oh, okay. I'm going to pick out the bits I missed. Here's an interesting thing. Do you know what patronage is? It's where you would support a cause, a group, person, or something like that. So it could be being a patron of a religious cult or of someone's political career or of an artist or something like that. Um, women who had wealth could be patrons. So this is a sort of really interesting twist. Like for women to be like publicly recognised figures, there was space for, but within a certain box, you were either a kind of matron of the city so you had to be a patron in a way that was like, oh, I'm kind of being the ideal domestic goddess, not just to my household, but to a city. Or you had to be a daughter of a cult. So you could be a sort of religious patron. Uh, and actually, women's access, I'll talk about that in a second. But you could, be, you could be a patron. So you could be a recognised public figure, but it had to fit within a certain scheme. Um, I was getting distracted by religion, Right. The, the Greco-Roman world was mad about religion. Like, you're gods for everything, left, right, and centre. Household gods, gods for the city, gods for the trade you're a part of, gods for uh, which way you're facing that morning, like, you name it, like, gods for everything. Um, it's interesting that women uh, could participate through most of the religious life of uh, most of the religions in the ancient world. They could be priestesses, they could offer sacrifices, prayers, um, they could... Just being, being involved as worshippers or as people who are more sort of insiders to a religious sect or cult, sort of running things. Um, so it's just like, yeah, kind of interesting, you know, here we are walking through lots of Christian history where women have been like, no, the men will do church, but you women can come. Unless it's to do the coffee, then you're fine. You know, like um, in the ancient world, actually, the context that like Paul's writing in, the norm in religious life is women are going to kind of be involved. Most most of these religious cults. Um, okay. Okay. Three last things. I'm trying to be quick. I'm spending my time deciding when to say three or four things. That's just I should have just said all four. But there we go. It's ridiculous. Um, here's an interesting thing. When you're thinking about like the place of women in the ancient world, ten to fifteen percent of births ended in the death of the mother. So the fragility of female life. If you were a slave and about a quarter of the Roman Empire were enslaved in some form or another, the likelihood is if you're a woman, you would either be vocationally a prostitute or be treated like a prostitute as part of being a slave. So, you know, your... I don't even know what the right word is. Risk of, of death 
never mind all the abuse, just flat out death is so high for most of the women in the Roman Empire. You know, kind of like just really interesting for us to think about, you know, what it looks like to treat each other well as male and female. And we've got a totally different context. Like, if we knew most of the women, well, I say most, if we knew, like, a good proportion of the women in the room, you know, if we figure 2.4 children per woman or something, you know, oh, yeah, like a, th- a third of you will probably die. You know, like, before you reach, you know, your mid-30s to 40s or something. Like, it would just be a different conversation, wouldn't it? That would just feel very different. So interesting little, like, stepping into the world, um, trying to occupy that world as we read these things and try and make sense of what's going on in these texts. Um, and the, uh, the last key thing is about a woman's value. So I talked about, like, the ideal woman is this, you know, wife who fulfills certain criteria. Um, but the, the value of a woman, like, why get married, why do this, is to create children, to create male heirs. So, like, one of the primary reasons that women are valued is, is as mothers, because they can produce children. And a mother's input, it could go through the life of a child through into being an adult, but it was the early years that are really critical. You know, by the time a child gets to about five or six, the father actually starts to get a bit more involved in like shaping like what direction he has for that child. Um, so you know, women are they're not valued because of their influence in the public sphere, uh, for being entrepreneurs, for for all sorts of things, like mostly they're valued because uh, of being able to produce children. But you just think back a little bit to like Proverbs 31 and you know, like the entrepreneurial woman you know, in Proverbs 31, some of these other things. Like even some of the Jewish Old Testament, where the needle hasn't had a chance to move very far yet, is still really different to parts of the Greco Roman world. But there are parts of the Greco-Roman world where it seems like the needle's actually moved further than Judaism has yet. And that's just like a general observation should caution us. Just because the history of Judaism contains it doesn't mean God says it's right. doesn't mean that's what we should follow. Our job is not to try to repeat history. (laughs) And so just those differences, uh, just the fact of those differences, provides a little caution for us about how we treat uh, the history, because last week we talked about the difference between the sort of descriptive parts of scripture that are describing what's going on, and the kind of normative, prescriptive parts of scripture where God's stepping in and saying I know you're all doing this, but this is actually what I want, this is what I need you to do, so there you go, lots of interesting background all of that stuff, now you have to store up in your head, and as we tackle other bits of the Bible now some of those little details will come popping out and be useful to us over to you. Okay. Or actually, anything to add as well. No, you did great. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. <laughs> can you guys hear me okay in the back? I know I tend to speak a little bit more quietly. We can all hear me? Yeah. Okay, let's turn it up. Great. Oh, that feels good? Okay, it feels loud up here, so as long as you guys are good. Um, if the people in the front row start doing this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, So against this backdrop that Richard has uh, kind of articulated for us, we want to ask the question, how does Jesus treat women? Because I think it's pretty significant uh, and a little countercultural to what's going on during the time. Now, we're going to highlight two specific stories that engage uh, women of low class in society. Uh, One, a Samaritan, and another woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, and so she would have been marked as unclean. for the past 12 years. So starting in John 4, most of you know this story, the woman at the well. There are lots of things going on in this story, but essentially what is taking place is Jesus is choosing to engage a Samaritan woman. Now, a Samaritan woman would have been considered unclean since birth. So she was tainted from the beginning. She's got layers of shame that are heaped upon her, not just because she's a Samaritan, which the Jews during the time did not get along well with Samaritans. There was a split uh, during, um, during the time where 
well, we won't have, I don't have a ton of time to get into that, but when uh, the 12 tribes dispersed into 10, into 2, there was a sect that came out, and that's where the Samaritans kind of emerged during that uh, divided kingdom. And from then on, Jews and Samaritans did not get along well. So Samaritans were considered unclean since birth from Jews. And so a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman would have been scandalous in lots of senses. But a second layer of shame is added to the story because when he starts to have conversations with her, he starts to expose some of the realities of her particular circumstances. So she's walking to the well in the middle of the day. This was uncommon, signaling that she was not only unclean according to a Jew, but also unclean within her own Samaritan society. Most women would wait until it cooled down during the day to be able to fetch water. She's going in the middle of the day, isolated and alone, so as to avoid the other women that she's traveling with. Now, a lot of times the story goes that uh, she had been divorced a bunch of times, and the, and the, hus- or the person, the male that she is with currently, is not her husband. And that signals to us that she's been living in sin her whole life. Now, there is an element of this taking place, but like Richard highlighted, uh, the the rights around Jewish women and Samaritan women for divorce were different than even in the Greco-Roman world. So it is unclear if she had any rights to any of those divorces. It is more likely that she was actually a victim of divorce after divorce after divorce, being cast aside time and time again. Now, the choice she's making to be with a current man that is not her husband, that is um, a demonstration of a particular type of sin. She knew that that was not the way uh, to live life. However, I think it's important that as Jesus kind of comes in as what she calls a prophet, exposing the reality of her circumstances, it is not just that she is living in sin, but that she's also been a victim of sin. And so he treats her in such a way that is significant to the countercultural narrative of dispose of her, move her to to the side, do not engage with her, She's unclean since birth. So we're seeing Jesus treat a woman in a very particular way that is different to the way that the culture is telling him to treat her, trying to move that needle, just like Richard has been saying, towards a more holistic and kingdom-minded way of treating men and women. Mark 5, we see two stories. Uh, We see Lazarus' daughter, who's 12 years old, and we see a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, which the, the writer, Mark, is creatively trying to portray that this woman has been bleeding for as long as a child's lifetime, trying to kind of hold the gravity of this, uh, the reality of this woman's circumstances. Now, if she was bleeding for 12 years, blood was considered to be unclean, so she would have been isolated from her circumstances and her society as well. So it wasn't just taking a physical toll on her, but an emotional and holistic toll as well. But she demonstrates sincere faith despite the isolation and rejection. She goes out just for a moment, just to try and at least touch the cloak of Jesus. And Jesus notices in the scriptures, it says that he noticed that the power came, came out from him and turns around and says, who touched me? And instead of responding as most rabbis would in that situation by telling her to flee, because the risk of him becoming unclean was now vulnerable, He allows his power to transform her rather than her uncleanliness to transform him. So he's setting, again, another cultural standard that is unlike what you see most rabbis participating in during the time. So, And he uh, he finally ends that story by restoring not just her body. He says, go, your faith uh, has healed you, but calls her daughter, restoring her holistic identity, and says, go in peace and be free from your suffering. So he's indicating to her that not only is she physically restored, but that he has a holistic approach to restoration in the lives of women who have otherwise been cast aside. Now we're going to go into a little bit more of the significance of why he's grafting some of these lowly people in, that he's not just dealing with Jewish men during that time, but more on that in a moment. Those are just two primary examples of how Jesus is treating women differently than how maybe the rabbinic culture or even the Jewish culture, has taught him in his upbringing to treat women. The second question we have to ask in the midst of this cultural conversation in the first century is, did Jesus have female disciples? Now, before we tackle 
the bigger question, why are the 12 disciples named in the Gospels only men? First, we want to talk about the other disciples that are mentioned with Jesus, because there were more than just the 12 that followed with him. Uh, and so there are uh, five different indications of Jesus actually having female disciples. The first, in Acts 9.36, there's a woman named Tabitha. She's also called Dorcas several times. Uh, she is considered to be a disciple. So in the Greek, disciple is translated as methetes. And so there's a feminine um, ending at the end of this, methetreia. And she is called a female disciple in Acts 9.36. In Matthew 12, he is gesturing towards a group of his disciples, it says in the text. And he says, here are my mother and brothers, and whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. So his gesturing towards a group of people, his disciples, considered not just the men that he lists off. He didn't say my brother and my uncle and my father. He says my mother, my brother, my sisters, gesturing towards the group of his disciples, both male and female. The third instance in Luke 8, we notice that Jesus was preaching the good news of the kingdom to cities and villages. And it says that the 12 were with him and some women who were providing out of their means. So this is a significant moment as well. Um, Richard mentioned that there were a few, very small few group of wealthy women that existed either because of their widow stature or because they inherited their dowry. And it says here that uh, the funding of Jesus' ministry and his mission as he's traveling around was being funded primarily by females. Not only indicating that females were present, but that actually they were kind of the motor driving his ministry forward, which is, again, significant. The mere fact that Luke, the writer of uh, Luke's gospel, as well as in Acts, is an even admitting to the readers that this Jesus movement was being funded by women would be considered scandalous. He's not just admitting it, but is emphatic to point out that this movement, despite the reality of how maybe socially inappropriate it was, was counterculture, Jesus moving the needle forward once again. Fourth example, in Luke 10, we know this story fondly, the Mary and Martha story. Oftentimes this gets chalked, this gets chalked up to, you know, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha is busy in the kitchen, and she's frustrated that Mary is not helping her. Now, some of those elements are taking place, but there's also something to suggest that Martha is actually getting socially self-conscious about the choice to have Mary sit and associate herself among the male disciples. She sits at the feet of Jesus, indicating that not only is he her rabbi, but that she is considering herself to be a student, a disciple of him. So Martha's agitation with Mary has a little less to do with having to do the lion's share of the kitchen load and a lot more to do with the acknowledging of the maybe inappropriateness of her cho choosing a fundamentally male position before Jesus rather than being in the kitchen where she belongs. Finally, the last indication of Jesus uh, having female disciples is that he, his teaching style indicates the company of both male and females. So I want you to think for just a moment that if we had, um, you know, if we had one of our male pastors up there on stage on a Sunday and all he used were football analogies, this would be an intentional teaching decision that would maybe ostracize or isolate about 60% of the congregation. Not to say that women can't love football, but by and large, most men gravitate towards that sport as a form of entertainment. And his teaching style would indicate that he is trying to communicate primarily to men as he's using that example. Jesus could have used male-specific analogies to target his male audience, but he doesn't just use male analogies. He's got several examples. In Luke 5, the first one, he presents two, par two twin parables. The first is the mending of the garment, and the second is the making of wine. The mending of a garment would have been a task associated with women, and the making of wine would have been a task associated with men. So the combination of him t teaching these two twin parallels, parables excuse me, back to back indicates that he's teaching not just to men, but to women as well. 
the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. This is another example in Luke 15. The parable of the lost sheep is indicating a male audience. Most shepherds were male. But the parable of the lost coin would have been an issue in the household. And most women were uh, stuck. I use the word stuck. They were um, positioned in the household. And females would be ones who were looking for lost coins because they primarily um, dwelt in that space. Again, two twin parables being taught both to men and to women. Luke 21 elevates the generosity of a poor woman over and against rich male givers. And we've got 27 more cases in Luke's gospel alone where he pales male and female parable, language, and teaching styles, indicating that Jesus' audience was not just male, but female. So all that to say, to answer the question, did Jesus have female disciples? Yes. Were they among the 12 disciples that we see listed out at the beginning of the Gospels? No. So we have to answer the question as well, why are there only 12 men? Now, this is a little bit of a theological conversation, so if that's not like your favorite thing in the world, bear with me for a second. We're going to have a Q&R right after this. But I want to talk theology just a little bit because it has a lot to do with what is set in the beginning of Genesis 1 through 11, as well as Genesis 12, all the way through to the end of Malachi. So Jesus chose the 12 Jews as disciples to serve as a representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus' ministry focused on reaching Israel because the earlier covenant was made with Israel, both the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic. For those of you who were here yesterday, Hakeem mentioned in his teaching that there are two primary narratives being developed simultaneously in the scriptures. The first is God's relationship with Israel, and that is spent from Genesis 12 all the way to Malachi. And the second is God's relationship with the nations, which is actually set up first in Genesis 1 through 11. And both of these narratives are simultaneously fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But a pattern emerges in in which both Jews and Gentiles are prioritized in Jesus' ministry. So, we see first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Gentiles were always included, but we see a pattern established that Genesis 12, all the way to the end of the Hebrew scriptures, there is a priority being set that Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant that they had been anticipating, that the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant has all been working towards in this one person, Jesus. So it was important that these 12 people, these 12 uh, hooligans, if you will, were being selected as representations of a larger fulfillment of a new covenant promise that the 12 tribes of Israel under under Jesus's leadership would be continually fulfilled in the new testament or in the new covenant excuse me so Jesus's choice of the 12 indicated the importance of this new covenant being founded on what was built before in the Hebrew scriptures So that's why at the end of the uh, New Testament, the two covenant peoples are symbolically joined in the New Jerusalem. The two covenant peoples uh, are on the foundations of the 12 apostles by the 12 gates with the 12 tribes of Israel. This is all language that has been being built from Genesis 12 on. Gentile inclusion in God's household rests on the earlier witness of Jewish apostles and prophets. So many of the 12 focus their ministries in Jerusalem to the Jews. We see this pattern, and that's why Paul is raised up as a missionary and an apostle to the Gentiles, because a lot of attention was being drawn specifically to Jerusalem and the conversion of Jews. The 12, who were representing the 12 tribes of Israel, did so because they also represented the 12 patriarchs. So those... Those 12 could not have been other, anyone other than Jewish free males. If there had been Gentiles or women or slaves, the reconstitution of Israel in Jesus himself, signaled by the Father at his baptism, simply would not have worked. So as an integral part of the ministry of Jesus, the 12 represented not only the 12 tribes of Israel, but also the newly constituted Israel under the new covenant in Christ. So consequently... 
The 12 cannot serve as a precedent for Gentile leadership, which prevails in the church today. Otherwise, none of us would be qualified. But it is important that the establishment of the 12 signal back to the importance of a new covenant being established and being built on the covenants that came before. The final thing that I want to note is that it's important that even though the 12 represent the 12 representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel, say that three times tribes of Israel, uh, were not a standardized form of leadership. So Jesus worked to teach these men out of the previous paradigms of leadership that they were exposed to. So we constantly see the men arguing over who is best, who gets to sit next to the right hand of Jesus. And Jesus corrects them each time with new principles of leadership that he's establishing. No one stands on their own authority, but authority given to Jesus by the Father. No one is better than anyone else. All are one in Christ Jesus. And the role of the servant is actually the new paradigm of leadership, demonstrated in his actions, like washing of the disciples' feet, and in his consistent questioning. He often asks people, what do you want me to do for you? Which was actually a a way of a servant greeting his master. And so he is flipping um, the paradigm of what leadership even looks like, even within their Jewish context, where they think, well, we're so special because we're the 12 disciples. We're the representatives of Israel. And Jesus goes, yes, I've selected you, not because of who you are, but because of who I am and what I'm establishing in the new kingdom and in the new covenant. So it's significant because of the history that is being built from Genesis 12 on. But we can't forget that there are two simultaneous narratives being driven from the beginning. The first is God's relationship to Israel being fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And we see that through the ingredients of how the 12 are selected. We also see the fulfillment of God's relationship to the nations, to all ethnos, from Genesis 1 through 11, being fulfilled in the person of Jesus as well. And that's why we see an emphasis of lowly women and servants and those who don't make sense in God's kingdom being grafted in because both are significant and important in the new covenant. So, taking a breath because I'm low on oxygen now. <laughs> we have time for some questions. Well, I actually missed a bit. Oh, yeah? So, okay. I missed a bit? Yeah. Okay. There's an entire section we talked about that I just decided not to do. Okay, great. Um, but I kind of like that we started with Jesus. So okay. maybe I can do quick fire round, like big themes from yep. the New Testament. Can you do it in five minutes? Yeah. Okay. So this is the page where you're like, hey, we skipped a bit. So now you can go back on your handout. Quick fire round. And these, uh, you could do a whole class on each of these. So I really... Like I might read a few of the key scriptures here, but write the scriptures down, have a little think about these. These are tone setters for the New Testament, like things that are really going to help us navigate. Uh, and the first one is maybe the weirdest one that we don't often think about, uh, but it's really important to the rest of this conversation. That's cultural accommodation for the sake of mission. So First Timothy 6, talking about servants and slaves, um, the instruction is uh, in verse 1 of chapter 6 let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as of worthy of all honour so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled the ideal like Paul even says, flat out says it, the ideal is freedom but for the sake of mission, for the sake of the gospel going forth, for the sake of the reputation of Jesus and this new way, like, endure some of the cultural stuff for, so, so that the mission can be moved forward. You see another example of it uh, in Titus chapter 2, talking about, uh, which is actually to do with gender roles and family and home. Um, in Titus chapter 3, you have it to do with political authority. It's a, it's a way of Paul basically saying, let's just, like, be seen as contributors to the Pax Romana for the sake of mission. Um, it, even in like First uh, Corinthians 7 and 8, you know, like, oh man, our ideals around buying and eating meat and how we shop would be, but for the sake of mission, we do things differently. And so this is a major theme in the New Testament. We can tend to be quite idealistic, especially in a culture where there's a lot of activism 
like our, the voices that we hear the loudest are the ones that are making the clear call for change, you know, for, for an ideal. Um, but actually, in the New Testament, there's a huge amount of subtlety. And so it's just important to note, like, we're not reading a collection of letters by idealists and activists. We're reading a bunch of, uh, of documents written by people who are being really strategic and canny about how they're going to play the game with culture in order to reach it. And so, yeah, just an interesting little... It's, it's uh, a more nuanced thing than you might think. Okay, next one, deep unity. So write down Ephesians 4, the first few, few verses, which, because they're awesome, I'm going to read. Um, and then uh, 1 Corinthians 12 as well. So the beginning of Ephesians 4. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called. Like, how, how do we fulfill? Like, we've been called to such a... What does it look like to fulfill that, to be worthy? Well, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace because there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all like just the key word jump out at you (laughs) one so there's this radical unity that's being established uh not like a segregate like the the roman picture of society was people in boxes with very clear boundaries between them, boundaries that were not to be crossed. The picture of the New Testament church is so radical to that world that actually, like, you could cross over these boundaries. Um, And 1 Corinthians 12 um, is this body language from Paul, where it's like, hey, we're one body but made up of different members. And this is just, I I think, I can't remember if it was on the podcast, I think I just said this last week, like the more complementarian you are, so the more you think, hey, there might be something to God's designing men and women a bit differently, the more partnering together should matter to you. Like if you thought all of your organs just did the same job, you'd be like, hey, like two lungs, two kidneys, ah, I can give a bunch of them away. You know, as long as I've got a heart, I'll be fine. Just leave me one organ, it'd be great. But if they all do different things, you're like, no, I really want a heart, a lung, and a kidney, and a liver, and a spleen, and a pancreas. Like, I, I want the full set. And so Paul, when Paul talks about this body language and every member mattering, that actually, as a tone setter, ought to inform our theology when we think about gender. Like, if we think God's designed some difference, then it's really important that that difference is included, not excluded. Okay, so that's deep unity, and there's so much in the New Testament about unity. So you can just Google that and find a myriad of things. Uh, okay, the next one, radical love. So 1 John 4, 7, and I said 7 to 12, the whole section there. But uh, there John says, love is of God. And if any, anyone doesn't love, then they're not of God. He just lays it out. Like, what a radical statement. Like, you better all love one another. And if you don't, you're not of God. Like, you're not part of... You, you don't get it. You're excluded if you're not loving. Wow. A lot of repentance for all of us and all of church history, right? That's a radical high call. Um, and I love another one to write down is First Peter one twenty two, And I love because Peter says, love one another from the heart. Because we can all do the, like, two minutes, right? We'll get on with each other. We'll be nice. We'll make small talk, you know. Like, no one's, no one's going to punch anyone in the two minutes or shove them over and steal their coffee, anything like that, right? But to love each other from the heart, to look around the room and be like, oh, we're a family. Like, there's a little bit of my heart that I need to give away to every single person in this room. Woo! That is a radical call to love. And there's a whole thing, like the ancient world actually had, um, I think they call it fictive kinship, the idea that we can talk about family in a way that extends beyond blood, uh, but is actually still really meaningful. And the New Testament takes that idea and just, whoa, puts it up to level 10. 
Um, I mean, the radical, unexpected love. I mean, like the Good Samaritan. Love your neighbour. Who's my neighbour? Well, that's unexpected. The category of neighbour is a lot broader than I thought. Um, Even like Matthew 5, who's supposed to love? The enemies and the ones that abuse us. Oh, man, that sucks. (laughs) The call is so radical, it blows our mind. So radical love, massive tone throughout the New Testament. Next one, upside down greatness. So Luke 8, 35, Jesus talks about, you know, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. That, that just doesn't make sense to us. We're in a culture where we get more secure, more protected, more comfortable, more thriving, the more we try to collect to ourselves. And Jesus says, no, the more you give yourself away, the safer and more thriving you will be. And, and it, it's patterned after God himself. God's ultimate expression of love is to, to die for someone. Um, Matthew 19, uh, verses 30, uh, around that Jesus talks about the first and the last. And actually, in the next chapter, there's another parable that ends. Like, you might think that those people are going to be first, but actually they're going to be last. And those people you thought were going to be last, actually they're the ones that are going to be first. And I think this all comes to a head in John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. So, verses 12 to 17. And... Jesus does this really unexpected thing of taking the form of the lowly servant and doing the job that was like, you know, if you're really naughty, that's the chore you have to do this week. Like like the kind of punishment chore, you know, like clean out the dishwasher filter with your toothbrush, like just something you don't want to do. And Jesus says, now, do you understand why I've done this? Like, I'm setting you an example of what it looks like to lead, to serve, to be the teacher, to be the master. It, it means taking the low place. So there's this radical upside down, and for like my love Molly saying the hooligans, we should just start calling them that, the 12 hooligans. Um, yeah, they, they're always arguing over who's the greatest, and Jesus is like this, this is greatness right here. And so, and and again, this continues, this sort of language, these sort of paradoxes continue through lots of the New Testament. So anytime we're thinking like lead, authority, decision maker, rule, like just those kind of words that for us signal like top God, top dog, power, privilege, things like that, we've got to slot that into a filter system where we're like, oh, but wait, Jesus had a radically different way of thinking about that. So it's a really important one. Um, inclusion. Um, there's loads here. I mean, even this John 4, like Molly covered, why on earth does Jesus go to spend time talking to this woman? You know, uh, what a way to reach out and include someone who's just like pushed right to the margins. And Jesus does it over and over again. Um, another one I thought of is just the whole book of Philemon. Paul writes because he's desperate to have someone who's like a co-worker with me in the gospel be able to really thrive in the ministry God's called him to but that person is a runaway slave like to even like harbour a runaway slave is a horrific crime in the Roman world Paul's not only harbouring he's harboured him giving him a new vocation and then writes to someone and says hey you need to release this person like, that is a radical, like, if you're thinking, like, of ministry partners, you, you know, I don't know what the equivalent would be of, like, e-harmony for ministry partners. Like, you go online, you're looking through profiles, like, that'd be a really funny skit. Um, <laughs> the runaway slave, you're not clicking on that one. Like, that's, that's definitely not who you want. So that's a really good example. Just even the disciples that Jesus chose. Oh, that's Philemon, book of Philemon. Uh, in Matthew, Matthew 10, you know, Jesus chooses these disciples. Uh, you know, fishermen, but, but a tax collector, a traitor. Like, never mind Capital Riot headlines. You know, like, a tax collector was someone that the entire nation could get behind lynching. Like, and Jesus includes that person 
in his inner circle. So this radical inclusion is like boundaries are being smashed through left, right and centre through the New Testament in, in ways that are really provocative. And we don't inhabit that world. So we're reading along and we're like, oh, a tax collector. Oh, and a fisherman. Oh, that's nice. You know, but we should get to the tax collector bit and bit like drop our Bible on the floor and be like, what? He did what? I don't believe it. Um, and there's lots of those moments. That's really exciting. Um, oh, maybe we'll talk about, there's another inclusion one is uh, Galatians 3.28, but we'll have to say a bit more about that one, maybe next week. Um, the other one is this kind of mutuality and mutual submission. Um, and I think we can camp on the submit words in the Bible and they trigger a certain set of things we think about. And we can miss that actually the big theme when submission comes up is submitting to one another. So like um, Ephesians 4, 21, uh, beginning this whole uh, section in Ephesians about household codes and how to walk in love and things like that. Um, says that we are to submit one to another. I'm sorry, I think 521. I'm making it up. Yeah, not 421. Uh, we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Like, if you are one of Jesus' disciples, if you want to honour Jesus, then, like, a primary response is to submit to each other. Not, and again, the countercultural, not women submit to men men submit to women the very idea that this religion could have space for it to be normative for a man to submit to a woman it just would be mind-boggling there's no category for that it's a radical departure for them um you see uh the uh well it it plays out well maybe we'll um we'll take a look at the household codes unpack them in more detail but it's worth reading through ephesians 5 and noticing the ways that submission is drawn out, like the, the different calls for men and women to submit to one another. Um, 1 Corinthians 7 is another one. Again, it's in the context of marriage. But, you know, it, it says the husband should give his own body as, as if it belonged to his wife, and she should count her body as belonging to the husband. Now, for a wife to be like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, my body's the property of my husband. Yeah, we've got a box for that. That's fine. But the other way around? Oh, no, 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 no. Like, that is so strange. That is so alien. That's kind of freakish. Um, but just these radical kind of calls, breaking down boundaries. Um, and last one, just to write down and look up, is First Peter 5, 5. Again, in the context of household codes, which is to have humility one towards another. So that, it doesn't use the word submission, but it's that posture again. The moment household codes are being talked about is this posture of like, we've got to be humble towards one another. And so there you go. There's a, there's a quick trip through uh, some key things. Um, I'm going to give you the mic back so you can answer the first question. But now, now let's, uh, let's do uh, yeah, some questions, see what questions you've got, see if we've got some responses we can give, and then we'll have a little break. So, a little bit of culture, a little bit of Jesus, got some themes. What does it make you think of? Uh, you were talking about those uh, five women that uh, you interpreted as disciples, or you could interpret them as, in many cases, as helpers. But my question uh, would be, of those five women, or any women, uh, is there anything in Scripture that shows that they were we are going to example some women teaching after the break um so should we defer let's pause that question do a bit of that and then see what comes back out I think, I mean, you're probably going to say the same thing. Like, being a disciple doesn't mean being a teacher. No. So, whether women are teaching, good thing to look at examples of, and we'll get to some of that. But, to... Teaching, yeah. Yeah, but for, um, for a woman to be able to take the posture of being a disciple, 
we think of disciple as just like, oh, you're one of the club. But a disciple was like, it, it fitted into a religious hierarchy of like, oh, there's a rabbi, someone who's actually like creating culture, like godly culture. And the disciple's job is to learn from their rabbi to become the next people who'll create that culture and help, help grow that thing. So you're, you're talking about the women that were helping, Yeah. So, we'll, and we'll get to examples of what the functions women are doing in the New Testament a bit later on. Yeah. But it, implicit in being a disciple was creating culture, which is, so making disciples. So, like the Great Commission. Um, in what ways that played out in the gender roles? Well, that fact doesn't answer that. So that's something we have to look at. But it was radical for women to be included just in that in any way, shape, or form. So that's the that's the like one clear thing to move forward in. Just just to clarify, what example are you referring to when it comes to the woman uh, helping with the fish? I want to make sure that I was speaking in turn because I don't quite remember uh, sharing that example. Oh, okay. No, that's that's no problem. I, um, I I don't. I want to clarify that that wasn't necessarily example. An example I was using for di, for disciple making or for be, the being in a uh, discipleship position. Tabitha is called a disciple in Acts nine thirty six. That's the most ex- explicit reference that we have. It's translated as disciple, and she was a female. Um, and then the gesturing of the group of men and women referred to as the disciples. So we have the 12 that are distinct and, and men. And then we have examples of the 72, and there's larger groups of people that accompanied Jesus as their rabbi. And so as their rabbi, they would have been disciples or learners, is a, another way to translate that, a learners of uh, their rabbi Jesus, learning in the way of Jesus. And that was both men and women. And again, the distinction of them teaching is an enti- is an entirely different discussion. Yeah. But, but then be, being, like learners, being a learner, yeah. being being a learner was um, pretty explicit in, in in the scriptures as both ma- male and female. Not the twelve, but the seventy two. There were women there as well. Yeah, but in the ancient world, for women to be in the gathering learning, very weird. Yeah. So that's the that's the point there. Yeah, so so the question is, like, were the 12 disciples a kind of special category, um, maybe, like, with more... Yeah, so it's 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 about whether the twelve disciples, sorry, the twelve apostles, the twelve, are, are sort of are a sort of distinct category from the other disciples, and and yes, they are. I mean, when it when it talks about Jesus uh, calling the twelve, like in Matthew ten, Jesus already got a big following of people, but he chooses twelve of them and kind of draws them into an inner circle, um, and and commissions them a bit differently. At another time, there's another circle out of the 70 that are distinct from the other hundreds and thousands that follow him. So there's sort of concentric circles away from Jesus of, like, different amounts of inclusion, you know, training and, and uh, an opportunity. And then that's reflected kind of in the other side, like, after Jesus' death in seeing, like, what some of those people go on to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, the, the, yeah, there's a bit of a difference there. I mean, just like use the word, they're they're special. There's something special about the twelve. 
Yeah. I, I think the, the thing we're trying to highlight is that the, um, maybe the exception or the rarity that's being presented is that there were female disciples in general because that was radically countercultural as well. The fact that Jesus, uh, not, not just allowed, but brought in both men and women into this new community that he was trying to establish. So there is something distinct about the 12 disciples, a lot of it having to do with fulfillment of the new covenant based on Israel's history and relationship with God and the way that the 12 disciples turn into the 12 apostles as those who are sent ones. There are other people that are called apostles too, both men and women that we're going to chat about after the break as well. But there is a distinctive there. Um, that they needed to be Jewish and they needed to be free, so not slave, and they needed to be male in order to fulfill what was being established uh, in the Old Testament. But the fact that women were included was the is the radical type of um, bringing together of the community of God that we were wanting to highlight over and against how traditional rabbis used to conduct their ministry. Yeah. Other questions. Yeah, Luke 8. At the very beginning, there's like the, the first big section, 1 through 3. Okay. Well, we're going to dive into lots more uh, after the break, but we want to give you like five to seven minutes to stretch, get some blood flowing, get cookies, tea, use the restroom, whatever you need to do, and then we'll circle back at 7.55.